probably begin to just analyze the, uh, the nine gifts enumerated, eight or nine, depending on how we parse um, the language here. We're going to make our way to the nine gifts. There are a number of other sort of observations I want to make before we get there. So if you're dealing with your, if we're working from your previous outline, I want to make sure that we start from uh, point number three. We're going to touch on that and work through that. <clears throat> and then I'm going to uh, share with you a few things that you don't have in that outline. I didn't have an opportunity to take my notes and formulate them into an outline. I would have, uh, but you'll have that for Tuesday and next Friday because I see that I really want us to go through this a couple of times and uh, work it through. But here's the, here's the question I'm going to pose um, as we begin to look at these passages. The question I would pose is, given where we are today and the time in which we live, uh, given the society, the temperament, the mental state of uh, where we are, would the manifestation of signs and wonders, and I just want you to think it through. Don't give an answer right now. You don't have to always know the answer before it comes out of my lips. Meditate on it, and particularly as we kind of look at a few of these verses. I'm going to go through the gifts. I'm not going to unpack them fully tonight. I don't even know if that's going to happen, period, because they're very complex in the way they're structured scripturally. But let's say, for instance, we were dealing with what was happening in the first century. Let's say we were dealing with what was happening in the era of Christ, then the era of the apostles. Those two eras we know because they're recorded in scripture. But let's say that we were living in a time in which those, what the scriptures are going to tell us are the manifestations of the spirit were happening today. If they were happening today, I mean, everywhere in the world, you can, you can create your own fanciful imagination on, on how, how uh, pervasive that would be. But the question is, would it be of any benefit in the 21st century, given everything we have presently at our disposal and at our uh, availability in terms of knowledge, information, data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Would it be beneficial for us to have to, in addition to everything that's going on right now, have to deal with, uh, observe and uh, absorb the idea of manifestations, manifestations of the spirit, manifestations of healings, manifestations of different gift dynamics. Would it be something that would be beneficial to humanity or would it be a liability and a challenge to humanity? I want you to think about that. I want, you to, I want you to think that through, and then maybe we can kind of have a little bit of conversation about it as we work through um, at least looking at the gifts today. Let me open in a word of prayer. We're going to reiterate about three or four verses in 1 Corinthians 12, and then we can have some conversation. Amen. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me, and let me read for us verses um, 4 uh, through verse 11. 4 through 11. Now, there are diversity of gifts, diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administration, but the same Lord. 
and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. That's a block of propositions we're going to be dealing with under point number three. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given the Spirit of the word of wisdom, by the Spirit rather, the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation thereof. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severely, severally, as he wills. So the Apostle Paul has introduced us to a couple of two or three major things. One is spiritual things, which is the conversation that he opens up addressing. That is his assignment. They were asking him about spiritual things. In this context, they are asking him about how the spirit works in the community of the people of God in a very tangible and affirmative and, uh, and tactile way. So spiritual things is what he's dealing with. And as I shared with you in the original grammar, um, there is an italicis there on things. So it's just spiritual, concerning spirituality. And I don't even really want to use that sort of uh, ending because of how ubiquitous that term is today. I'm spiritual, I'm spiritual, and spirituality can have such a general and broad uh, meaning that is not biblical, but concerning the things that are spiritual in contradistinction to the things that are material or secular. That would be the idea. And you and I have worked through verse two and, and three on, uh, on, on Tuesday, and I don't want to revisit that anymore other than to say what Paul was doing as he was preparing to give us this category of lists that we're going to be dealing with in verses 4 through 11 is to make sure that the Corinthians understood there is a telltale signal of people who are truly begotten of the Spirit, truly spiritual versus those who are not. And that's, that's going to render an inference too on something else. What he said in verse 3 was that, that no one can really be speaking by the Spirit. So this has to do with his dialogue, his conversation, and and literally his confession. No one can, who is speaking by the Spirit, call Jesus accursed. And we worked that through. What I told you not to fall prey to is a kind of rhetorical nomenclature. That is to say, the issue is not whether or not someone can literally say Jesus is cursed, Jesus is cursed, but rather one cannot occupy the the gifts of the Spirit in a way of salvation and service before the Lord, and yet at the same time have a confession of heart that denies the finished work of Christ on the cross so that he does not or she does not or they do not really believe that Jesus is Lord. So this is what we learned, did we not, on Tuesday, that to call Jesus Lord 
is to believe that he not only died for our sins and thus was on the cross accursed for us, but that he was buried and that he rose again the third day and that he ascended on high and he sits at his father's right hand as both Lord and Christ. Did that make some sense? Right. So for men and women to assert that they know spiritual things and have spiritual gifts and and have spiritual influence, but they deny the incarnation of Christ. They deny the redemptive work of Christ and they deny the cross work of Christ. What Paul is saying is such a person cannot be spiritual who does that. Now, the reason he's doing that is this. You cannot disconnect the work of the spirit from the work of the son. And the work of the son is the basis of the reality of the work of the spirit. So as we go into spiritual things, it must be understood that spiritual things are not acquiesced or obtained by or grasped by people who are not submissive to the reality of the lordship of Jesus. Did that come home? Right, because what you're going to learn as we work through the text is that unsaved people can demonstrate spiritual qualities and yet not be spiritual. So we're going to have to look, work that through. And I love what Paul is doing. He's making sure that the Corinthians understand heart matters before they engage in the externality of manifestations. He's helping them understand what it really means to be a Christian versus what it means to be a showman of religion. I hope that comes home to you. That's why I'm kind of raising the question. Given where you and I are today in our present time, in our world, with all of the technology, I'm going to cultivate that thought while I've got you. With all of the technology that's present and available in our world, which means knowledge has increased, as Daniel said. Is that not so? Given all of the information that we have, all of the resources and and multiple layers of history that we have archived and, and the capacity for information and data to be so powerfully manipulative. Given that, the notion of then, in addition to that, us having to wrestle with discerning whether or not God is working in the area of miracles and signs and wonders and phenomena, the question is, is, would that be a good thing or would that be a danger to our society? Does that make some sense? All right, so let me go to work on what, is, what else is important. If, in fact, what I stated was that calling Jesus Lord is prerequisite and necessary for a real relationship with the spirit in terms of spiritual things. Now what you and I want to understand is how the operation of those spiritual things take place in relationship to the collaboration of the Godhead, because that's what you got in verse four. Look at verse four, which a uh, verse three, rather. No, verse four, which corresponds with your third point in your outline. Notice what it says. Now, there are diversities of what? And that's really right. Uh, dotes is the Greek term, and it means that you and I have been receiving now things from God. Didotes is the idea that he gives us things. Like parodidomai is a verb that means God gives us over. 
Uh, didotis means that he gives us things that so he's dealing with gifts being given. And what it says here is there are a diversity of gifts. You guys see that? And then notice what it says. But the same what? Which one is cardinal among the triune God? Number three, the spirit of God is understood as the what person? The third person. Are you guys keeping up? Are you here with me? This is going to be important for you to get. Okay. So notice what he says off the top. He says the spirit of God is engaged in a diversity of gift giving. Did that come home? Right. A diversity of gift giving. We're going to touch more on that in our outline. But then notice what he says in verse uh, five. He says, and there are differences of administration, but the same what? So now he moves from the spirit to the Lord, who is who? Jesus. That's right. We call him the Christ. So he's the second person, is he not? And the second person is also engaging in the diversity because that word difference, I don't know why they translated it any different than they did in the previous verse other than make distinction. Differences, diversities of administrations. Notice what it says. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. You guys see that? So if you were looking at the previous verse, you would notice similarities. The third person and the second person are doing things. But the first per, uh, the third person is doing something different than the second person. The third person is giving gifts. The second person is administrating those gifts that are given. Did that make some sense? We're going to unpack that even more. And it's going to be important for us to be able to understand the sequence of that relationship at the collaborative level. But look now at the next verse, because this is going to be important as well. And there are diversities of what? Now, that's our same term, diversity, administration, diversity. They could have just kept diversity. They could have said the Holy Spirit had a, has a diversity of gifts, that the second person has a diversity of administrations, and the, third, uh, the first person has a diversity of what? Operations. Do you see that? That's what they could have said. So I'm just simply saying to you, this is what we got. And who would who would this person be whom we're calling God? The father. God, the father, whenever the term Jesus is present with theos or God, the person in view is the father. Did that make some sense? Whenever you read in the same context, Jesus and the father, Jesus is going to always be. Uh, nomenclatured by the phrase curios or Lord and the father is going to be God. Okay. So you got the God, you got God and then you have the Lord Jesus and then you have the spirit of the Lord. Okay. Or the spirit of the father or the spirit of Christ. Those are the terms in the new Testament. So when the spirit is given this uh, nomenclature, curios or Lord, he is the spirit of the Lord in that he shares authority with the second and the first person. Does that make sense? Now, he shares authority with the second and the first person over those for whom Christ is actually Lord. Because what we're dealing with, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is the fact that Jesus is really the one running the business here. Christ is running the business. I want you to get this. The business here is the idea, going back to verse number five, 
the business here is, uh, is and, and there is a, there are diversities of administration. See that term administration? In your outline, it will be the term services. I call it businesses. The term services is really the Greek term diakonos, from which we get the term what? Deacon. I'm going to help you with that here in a moment. So the spirit of God is the one actually giving the body of believer gifts. We haven't gotten there yet. The second person is actually giving the people of God assignments. Did that make some sense? Yes. Yes. The third person is giving you tools, resources, equipping you, furnishing you. You get your whole panoply of gear for the assignment. But it's the second person who is our Lord that gives us our assignments. I wanted that to come home. Okay, it's really important to get that. Now, going to the third, uh, going to the first person in verse six again. uh, First Corinthians 12, six. And there are diversities of what? There are diversities of operations. So the third person gives us gifts. That is, he resources us with the tools necessary. The second person, the Lord Jesus, gives us our business or our assignments. You guys got that? But the first person gives us our what? Operations or here's a better word, our power. Not authority in terms of exousia, but our power in terms of energon, energy, energy, energon, energon. In our language, it's energy, the energon of God. Now, the energon is going to be important because if we're talking about the energon, we're talking about the energy or the power that allows our assignment to be accomplished through our gifts. Did that make some sense? If I have gifts, but I don't have energy, what do I have? Empty gifts. Did that make some sense? I'm going to come back. If I have gifts, but I don't have an assignment, then I have a purposeless gift. Did that make some sense? But if I have gifts by the third person that we call the resident what? Lord. Anybody keeping up with me? He's the one that hangs out with you. The other one sits on the throne as the mediator with the father. It's the Holy Ghost that's kicking it with you, giving you the gifts. But the Holy Ghost knows that your assignment comes from Jesus. That Jesus is your what? He's your ruler. He's your Lord. He's your redeemer. He's the one that tells the Holy Ghost to tell you where to go. That makes sense. He gives us our assignments. But the third person and the second person are inseparably tied to the first person for power. Did that make some sense? For some of you, it didn't. Only because you will view the father and the son and the spirit as totally separate when that's absolutely impossible. To separate the father from the son, from the spirit, without understanding the ground of their unity, is to assert three different gods. But if there is but one God, even the father, you guys have been taught that, right? 
both in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Pull it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll start at around verse 4 or 5. If there's but one God, and yet there are three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, how do we harmonize one God with three persons? Does that make some sense? Right, it has to, because if you and I were dealing with the third century, first century, uh, second century A.D., you and I would be struggling through the history of heresies in the church. And the history of heresies in the church is a heresy where some swung to one extreme, which we have today in a few denominational expressions, where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are said to be all the same person. That would make them one person with three different names. Did that make some sense? This is what we call oneness Pentecostalism. This would be what is called a Unitarian view of God. You can write this down either monopersonal or unipersonal God. One person. Does that make some sense? Good. Then swing over to the other side where if we acknowledge the distinction between the father and the distinction between the son, and the distinction between the spirit in terms of their personalities individuated. And and we would be able to do a test on that. For those of you who don't know it, we have many studies on the Trinity. You can go online, you can call the office, and we lay it out for you. But this is how you know that the triune God or the Trinity that we speak of is triune in their persons. We call it tri-personality. They are a tri-personal God, three persons who share the same divine nature. Did that make some sense? Three persons who share the same divine nature. So right now you're being told to hold in tandem a paradox of persons over against nature. Did that make some sense? Right. So now this is important for those of you who are new, because I want to make sure that you can handle this. That when you think about the nature of God, what you are never thinking about are limitations of his nature. When you think about the nature of human beings, you have every right to think about the limitations of human beings. Because human beings are limited in their nature to their persons. Did that make some sense? Human beings are limited in their nature to their persons. This is what I mean. No human being shares at the nature level ontologically a relationship with another human being. We all have per capita, this is called individuation, a nature individually from one another. So what that means is if I die, Everybody else still lives. Even though our nature is alike, it does not constitute one unity. Because if I had another person who shared the nature with me, are y'all ready? And I died, they would what also? Or if they died, I would what also? Did y'all get that? Trying to help you here understand that when it comes to the nature thing, when we talk about one God here, O Israel, this is the Shema in uh, Deuteronomy 4, verse 6. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Okay, what we are talking about is one divine nature shared by three divine persons. Does that make sense? 
So this is why we call them the one God. There's only one God. Listen to how the language puts it. Here it is. As concerning, therefore, eating of those things that are offered in, in sacrifice and idols, we know that an idol is what? Nothing in the world. This is an epistemological ac- certainty to us that if we actually believe in one God, one true and living God, then no one else could be God. Even though all kind of other people will claim themselves to be God, the best they can be is an idol. All right, so you see what we have to do even to get started in our fundamentals? You got to know fundamentals. This is where the Christian church is all over the map because they have lost a sense of the fundamentals. They don't even know how to defend the Godhead because you do have to think these things through, right? Or else what you're going to be dealing with are levels of internal contradiction because you haven't been taught how to organize categories in a way of being able to explain there is only one true and living God. If there were two gods in the universe, the one who is claiming to be the one true and living God, as Isaiah said, Isaiah said it so many times from Isaiah chapter 41, 42, 43, 44. I am God alone. Besides me, there is no other. If that's true, then every other God is a pretended God. And we call pretended gods idols. Y'all keeping up with me? We got a lot of human gods. Do we not? But they're nothing but what? Right. There's one true and living God. And when we talk about that one true and living God, we start with who? God the Father. And God the Father shares his nature with who? God the Son. And God the Son shares his nature with who? These here then are three divine persons sharing one nature. Did y'all get that? It's important for me, for you guys to make sure. Three divine nature, three divine persons. Father, he has his own uh, nominative. Jesus, he has his own nominative. He's either called Jesus, Jesus, or he is called the son of God, Huios, okay? Or he is called um, Messiah, or he is called Messiah, or he is called Yeshua, Okay, in the Hebrew, he is the second person. The father is never called Yeshua. The father is called Jehovah. He is never called Yeshua. Yeshua is always attributed to Hashim, the second person, because Yeshua Hashim is the word of the living God. So the father is the one who declares through the son his will and purpose by the spirit. Does that make some sense? So I want you to build some more categories while I got you there. The father is called Cardinal One, Cardinal One, meaning he is the grounds of the unity between the son and the spirit. Without the father, there is no what? Without the son, there is no what? That's exactly right. So I run a line through the father, through the son and through the spirit because the source and ground of their reality and power starts with who? That's exactly right. Did that show up with you? Did y'all get that a little bit? It's important for you to get. It's important for you to get. That's why your savior came. And when he came, he walked in the humility of his second person status. He never stole glory from the father. He never told people he was the father. 
He never forced equality with the father so as to have human beings struggling with whether or not him and the father are the same person. That would have been disrespectful as the son. The son can never be the father. Did y'all get that? And I drive these things home because Christians skate all over the ice when they're dealing with people around these things, do they not? And this is so here's how good God is to you. Are you ready? This is why you and I cannot succumb to this present postmodern age of fickleness to to discard reality for the figment of our own sort of fabricated worldviews. Did that make some sense? So postmodernism says there's nothing real. Everything is a social construct. So whatever you declare is reality. That makes you God. Because the last time I heard, God is the only one that can speak into existence and it comes to be. But now, if you actually believe that nothing is really real, but what you declare it to be, then everything that you and I have experienced that we have constituted real was a myth. And now we're waiting on you to speak reality into existence. And if we get a bunch of you fools doing that, then you can tell us who used to believe that we're men, that we're women. Y'all keeping up with me. Right. So what I'm trying to help you understand is why when you get your Bible right, when you get your Bible right, you are called a man or a woman who is sound in the faith. You are grounded in reality. This is what John is teaching in John chapter uh, John, chapter 17, verse three. And this is eternal life that they might know you the true and the living God and Jesus whom he has sent. Does that make sense? So the father is the ground of reality. The son comes to make the ground of that reality a manifestation in our lives so that we are connected to that reality through the son. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's the job of children. The job of children is to honor their parents. That's why Torah said, honor your mother and your father that your days may be long upon the earth because it's a picture of what Jesus did. He said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He says, I work and the father works. That's John chapter five. They wanted to kill him. He says, why are you seeking to kill me? I'm only doing what my daddy told me to do. In fact, I don't do anything but what he says. Y'all remember that? I don't act outside of the scope of my subordinate relationship with the father because I and the father are what? On chapter 10. It's very important to to get these fundamental categories. This here is what, by the way, in theology, this is what we call theology proper. The subject we're dealing with is theology proper. It is the doctrine of God. Where you get the doctrine of God wrong, you are all over the map with every other doctrine. You cannot get the doctrine of salvation right if you get the doctrine of God wrong. Because, look, it's a, it will be just as arbitrary as it is in this culture for boys to say, you know, I think I'm a girl or a girl to say, I think I'm a boy. Do, can you imagine the third person, the Holy Spirit saying, you know what? I think I'm the father. Am I making some sense? No, they know better, don't they? They know their roles. They know their relationship. Because what you have in your outline under point number three, where I'm going to dig in now with you, is called the divine triune collaboration. The divine triune collaboration. Do you see? Do you have that in your outline? 
right? The divine triune collaboration. Now, this is free for all you new people in, in, at Grace. When you have this framework understood, you will see the Trinitarian collaboration in all kinds of passages of Scripture. Am I making some sense? You will see how the New Testament will show you these triune uh, qualities as well as in the Old Testament. I'll have to give them a couple if you don't guys don't mind who already know these things. Isaiah chapter 61, verse one. Listen to it. Look for the triune manifestation or the triune uh, emblem here. The spirit. Who is that? The third person of the Lord God. Who is that? The father is upon me. Who is that? We know that because Jesus quotes this in his first sermon in Luke chapter four, does he not? Do you see the triune emblem there? It's important for you to know. The third person of the first person is upon the second person. And we know that factually because um, Isaiah spoke in 750 BC and before Christ could go and do his ministry, he had to be what? Endowed with the Holy Ghost, did he not? And didn't the father open the heavens in Matthew chapter three, verse 16, the first person speaking from heaven about the second person who was on earth and the third person came down and sat on him. And according to Matthew's gospel remains there, which means you can't have the third person without the second. This is what I meant in the opening of my my presentation. So you have a Trinitarian formula in Paul's explaining spirituality, do we not? What do I mean by that? Paul tells you in verse one and two concerning spiritual things. There's no way you can have the third person if you don't get the second person right. I'm making sense now, am I? You can't have the third person in all of these unique gifts in which we're going to talk about unless you acknowledge that Jesus came, died, was buried, raised again and went back home because that is the signia of his triumph. In fact, didn't he tell us in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, if I do not go back home, I will not be able to send the comforter. So the third person does not become for us a dynamic, a supplier, a a furnisher of gifts and qualities if the second person doesn't go back home. So what's at home in heaven at the right hand of the father is the father on his throne, his son working with him as a co-vicar. Is that not right? The father's king of kings and Lord of lords and the son is co-vicar with him. Is that the Bible? Right. This is what we call a divine monarchial framework. So the father and the son rule over everything. That's Psalm 110 verse one and two. Is it not? Look at it again. Psalm 10, 110 verse one and two. I need to just give you guys who are new in understanding that Trinitarian theology is the only way you're going to properly understand your Bible. The Lord, you see it all capital Lord. That's Yahweh or Jehovah said unto my Lord. You see the Lord, uh, capital L, Lord, O-R-D. That's Adonai. And Adonai, whenever it's in association with Jehovah, is a constitution of a father-son relationship. That means Adonai is subordinate to Yahweh. Did y'all get that? So I'm going to help you because this is theology class and you came out on a Friday and God's going to bless you. Wherever Adonai is spoken of individually, apart from where Jehovah is, because Adonai will be all over the place. Sometimes Adonai is the father. Most of the time it is the son. Did that make some sense? And Adonai will also be used of human authorities. You need to know that. Okay. 
But I'm just saying, when you go through the grammar carefully like I do, every now and then Adonai will be an attribution to the father as the master and ruler. It does not set aside the son. It's just in certain unique cases, the father will be acknowledged as the master. I totally get that because in the Old Testament context of a patriarchy, you guys, the patriarchs were masters. What is the patriarch? The rule of the fathers. Patir. So Abraham was a patriarch. Isaac, Jacob, the 12 boys, Adam, Noah, right? Methuselah, right? You know, all those were what? Patriarchs. All of them carry what kind of paradigm? Father paradigms. So your Bible from Genesis all the way up to uh, the end of Judges is all patriarchal until we start with King Saul, who is, you know, the Biden administration today, right? Because King David was really God's king. Didn't I tell y'all that? The, the people chose Saul, not God. And God gave them what they wanted. He gave them Saul in his anger and took him out in his wrath. Hosea 14. That's why Saul had a bad relationship with God. Did y'all notice that? Bad relationship. He never knew the Lord, never loved the Lord. He was in it all for himself. You can't do that because when you were God's monarch, you were actually God's son. When you were God's monarch, you were God's son. Every monarch in Israel was to be like Jesus. That's why David is called the beloved, because Jesus is the beloved. That's why Solomon was to do what David said. And that's why David told Solomon, you got to play the man, boy. No pun intended. Right, because he already knew Solomon was a little weak. Did he not know that? Son, you got to step up to the plate, because when you occupy this monarchial throne, you are representing the father. That's exactly right. So they had what were called successions. Keep up with me. The monarchy was to be a dynastic monarchy from one tribe going all the way to Jesus. And that was going to be the tribe of who? Judah. So what was supposed to happen was from David to Solomon to Rehoboam to Asa, so forth, all the way down to Jesus. That would have kept it in the what? Family. Y'all keeping up with me. But because of Solomon's crass subjection to the fallacy of his weakness around riches, the kingdom was divided, was it not? So the 10 northern tribes called Israel, they were governed not by dynastic rulers, but by all kind of hodgepodge kings that God allowed to sit on that throne because God never acknowledged the 10 northern tribes as his throne. He only acknowledged the throne of David. Because David would point to the greater David. And so God would keep the Davidic throne all the way up through Josiah and Joash. All the way through Manasseh even, as bad as that boy was. Until Jesus came and sat on the throne of his father David. Y'all keeping up with me? Right, so this father-son paradigm has been working in our world from the beginning of time. And this is what makes where I am so dangerous, the culture I live in so dangerous, because we have completely decimated the father-son paradigm. We have completely destroyed the, the nuclear family paradigm of a man and a woman and a household under the rubric and blessing of that two-parent system. Did that make some sense? And so now God's throne is attacked 
having attacked the family throne. Some of y'all get what I'm saying. No wonder our society is shredded in terms of its identity, in terms of the Imago Day. It does not even know how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Because of an assault on the first parents, Adam and Eve. And so here we are today, not able to comprehend God in a substantial way because we can't see him through the model that he set up, which is the earthly family. Okay, and so I don't want to continue on this, but I thought it was necessary for us to drill down just a bit into it. Under point number three, the divine triune collaboration. What does that mean? They co-labor together, do they not? They co-labor. They are never against each other. I and my father are one. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and immerse men and women into this reality. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the triune God. Would you guys agree with that? Because it's the triune God that actually brings about our salvation. And again, I could take you through multiple New Testament verses to show you this Trinitarian formula. I'll give you just one more, Ephesians 1, but it's everywhere, really. If you look at it carefully, Ephesians 1, verse 1. Notice what it says. Paul, an apostle... Of who? He's the first person, third person, or what? He's the first or third or what person? Who is Jesus? He's the second person. Keep cardinal too. Now notice what it says. Paul, an apostle of the second person by the will of? Y'all got that now? Remember I told you, wherever Jesus is in the same context with God, Theos is the father. Otherwise, grammatically, we would have problems, would we not? You can't take two subjects and make them the same. Right. You can't say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of Jesus Christ. No, you're going to create contradictions. This is what we would call a tautological rhetorical statement. It wouldn't even be necessary. You would be able to actually parse that more coherently if he was talking about only one person. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to his will. We wouldn't need according to the will of God because we would already know Jesus is himself God, would we not? So then if we add up God, Hathaos there, we're saying that Jesus is the mediator between him and his father. And the will of the father is being done by the apostle Paul as the will of the father is being done by all of us. As Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy what be done, thy what be done. So the son is telling us to do the will of the father, which makes us what? Sons. Because did he not come to do the will of his father? And if I'm a son, I'm obligated to do what? The will of the father. So we already see two persons here, do we not? Watch this. To the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, verse 2. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, Cardinal 1, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, Cardinal 2, right? And now he enumerates the blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all what? Aye, here we come now. We're moving into the third category because the spiritual gifts are given to us by the who? The third person. We know that now, don't we? So we have the father, we have the son, and now we have the third person featured because he's the one blessing us tangibly and personally. 
We know this because when we go all the way down, we'll walk this through verse four through verse uh, verse um, 10. Notice what it says. Just walk it through according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world with the purpose of us being holy and without blame before him because he loves us. That's the way to frame that. Verse five. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of what? Sons by Jesus Christ. Who is the he? The father. Right. Jesus didn't adopt us, didn't predestinate us. The father did. He predestinated us in the son. That makes us sons also. Now, we are not God's ontological exact image son as Jesus is, but we are proxy sons because we have now the spirit of God by which we cry what? In the same way Jesus did. Did Jesus cry Abba Father? That means we're sons. Is that not right? Right. So now notice what he says, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that that pronoun his is going to always be the father having. Uh, we're, we're good. Go to verse six, please. To the praise of the glory of his. Who is the his here? The father. See, he is the subject right now. The secondary subject will be Jesus. The tertiary subject is the spirit. His grace wherein he hath made us. Who is the he? Y'all got the answer, right? I remember, remember, that's Pater. I'm helping you harmonize the text. The father speaking because notice immediately after the father comes who? The father hath made us accepted in the son. This is my beloved son. Look at the next verse. Notice what it says. In whom, that is the son, we have redemption through his blood. Do we know that? Did not Jesus say this is the New Testament in my blood which was shed for you? So you see how we're cascading from the father to the son in this sort of Trinitarian uh, collaboration. And we haven't gotten explicitly to the Holy Spirit, but it was infirmed by the spiritual gifts, was it not? Watch how this goes. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, verse eight, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence. That is, you and I have the wisdom and prudence of Christ. Having made known unto us the mystery of what? We've already asserted that the will is the will of the father. This is how you stay coherent in your textual development. This is a contextual interpretation of the passage. That way you don't skate all over the ice trying to give interpretations outside of its context. It has to flow coherently with the text because that's the nature of the spirit of God. He's not a spirit of chaos, but what? Order. And you can see the flow. Notice, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that is the father, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, the father, he, is that the father? Might gather together in one all things where? So you see how the father is collaborating with the son? to save us and gather us and gift us. This is a father-son collaboration. Notice, both which are in heaven or which are on earth, even in him, even in him. Verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. Are we heirs with Christ? Join heirs with Christ? Being predestinated according to the purpose of who is to him again? And notice, because I want to affirm this as we go back to our point, who does what? The father does what? The father does what? Operates. It's the same. It's the same word. Operate. The father is operating. The father's operating all things after the counsel of his own will. 
Now, again, whose the will is this? Right. Isn't that what Jesus says? I came to do the will of him that sent me. Verse 12. That we should be to the praise of the glory of uh, uh, of his grace who first trusted Christ. We who are believers in Christ are only going to result in this end or teleos of the praise of the glory of his grace as the father works in us by the son, these qualities that he gives us through the spirit. This is what he's about to do now. Close with the third person around that inheritance. Back, go back, sis. I know you, I know you're gone. I need to help my folks get it. That we should be to the praise of his glory. Who is he is again? That's exactly right. Who first did in, who first trusted in Christ. This is Paul talking to the early church, obviously, but Paul knew this would pass all the way down 2000 years to us because we're trusting Christ, too. Are we not? Right now, notice what it says in verse 13, in whom also you trusted, that is Jesus, after you heard the word of what? The gospel of your salvation. You guys are getting ready to see that in the gifts here in a moment. So what he's saying now is the way you have been brought into a trust mode is according to the father's predestinating purpose and adoption in Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. Now, that's really true. You're not only saved because we've heard the gospel. The gospel has brought us into this inheritance, which is ours in Christ. It's called the gospel of your what? Salvation. In whom also after that you what? You were sealed with the third person. See it? Do you see it? Paul took his time from verse 1 to verse 11 to show us the complete panoply of what I call the spiritual benefit package of the saints, the spiritual benefit package of the saints. And not only do we have a benefit package that is par excellence uh, uh, um, uh, contended by none, but we can't lose it because it's sealed by the spirit. The spirit seals us in this inheritance. All you and I need to do now is operate out of it. Does that make sense? All right, let's go back. I want to work through our next portion here uh, under the uh, point number three. Having said all that, this should make sense to you now. Watch this. The third person, which we call the spirit of God, under sub point A of point number three, he's the one that is distributing various kinds of what? That's exactly right. He's the one distributing. That's what that word means, okay? That word darisis means to distribute. He's dishing out gifts. The second person is distributing missions, assignments, services. It was indicated when the second person said go. Didn't he say go? As you are going, be ready to tell people about me. Yep, going to all the world, preach the gospel, right? Now he knew that they couldn't go without first having the third person. Because the third person has to give them resources so when they get where they go, they have something to show. When they get where they go, they will have something to show because this is about manifestation. We're going to touch on that tonight. We got a few more minutes. That's under point number two. The Lord Jesus sent them out two by two. Did he not? As a precursor, as an example of him sending them out to their missions. He never said that he would be their Holy Spirit. He said, I will give you another comforter who will be with you like me. He will be with you and in you and he will bring you into remembrance of everything I have told you. Is that what he said? 
Right. So we are seeing now this divine collaboration under point number uh, sub point B. So look at sub point C. Okay. so the first person is who? That's right. His distribution is that of what? Power and what? Right. Because we're about to see that the power and the workings are going to be in terms of the efficacy of the gifts at the miraculous level. The efficacy of the gifts at the miraculous level. Now, this is what I was talking about. So now what we're getting ready to do, psychologically, you're getting ready to drift. And here's the reason why you're getting ready to drift psychologically, because when we go into the dunamias, the dunamias, the gifts in terms of power and manifestation, that is not something that happens at the phanero or epiphany or expression level visibly, empirically, every day, all day long. I want to make sure you get what I'm about to say, because this is important. That the father actually works through the son top down through the Son and by the Spirit to bring about the epiphany, the manifestation, the expression of invisible things. He does not do it every day, all day, everywhere, so that we are constantly exercised with visible manifestations. Did that make some sense? All right, I'm going to tie another knot here, and then I'm going to go on to lay out the gifts. That he does not grant finero, that he does not grant manifestation, that he does not grant the revealing. Literally in the grammar of that word, it means that he does not bring to light. Does not mean that there's not light there. Does not mean that there's not things happening in the unseen realm. Y'all keep it up with me, saints. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Very good. Felt like I had to work really hard for that, for that 30 minutes. Very good. All right, I want to say one more thing with that so when we get to dealing with the gifts, you won't feel like I'm tripping you up. Now, remember what I just said. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. That's thinking like a child. Children can't often comprehend what they don't obviously see. That's because conceptually and psychologically and mentally, they are blind. That's why they're called babes. That's what a new Christian is, and that's what a non-Christian is. The non-Christian is blind. The new babe is blind. He has to be taught as his eyes are gradually opening to what the reality that is already existing is. Does that make sense? That's the way Paul is teaching in in Romans chapter two. Are you a guide to the blind? Are you a teacher of what? Babes. Those are two sides of the same coin. Don't think that that's a bad thing. Listen. You and I need God to open our eyes every day. So do we not pray, open mine eyes that I might behold the wonders of your law? If, if, if what I said earlier was true, just because I don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. 
would infer or at least lay out the suggestion that there are a lot of things I need to see, but I can't until God reveals them to me. Would you agree with that? All right, I'm going to drill down just a little bit more and then we're going to play around with the gifts. Then the experience of humanity is one, in my opinion, where we're all, we're all living at multiple differentiated levels of blindness. At multiple differentiated levels of blindness. The whole human experience is that of either we are babes, are mature, and seniors are not. Did that make some sense? Having developed through experience and time and troubles and trials and falls and being raised up again by God's grace, this is how your eyes are gradually opened to realities. Would that make some sense? Otherwise, as a child, guess what you are doing largely? In the absence of the clarity of what's already there, you are playing with figments of your imagination and living in the realm of fantasy. Did that make some sense? Sure, because you're waiting for reality to come. You ain't got nothing to do. You're a three, four-year-old child. You're hearing all kind of words from all kind of folks. You don't know what that means. And then as it, picture images are coming and what we would call, you know, tutoring uh, uh, skills and tools like that, mnemonics, all, you're playing with all that until it becomes a reality through your experience. And isn't it true that you and I have gone from level to level to level as a child into teenage years into adult and the adult years are the most crucial years because in the adult years, we often substitute knowing with presumption in the arrogance of our powers because we have the ability to kind of create, you know, constructs that are not necessarily real. And until somebody comes and busts that bubble, it's real to us. And is you know how many of you ever ever had really the ability to manipulate your friends? You're gifted enough to manipulate your friends. They ran with John because John had the gift of gab. They hung with John because they were all you know naive, immature. Y- y'all know what I'm saying is true. When you're naive and immature, you like to ha- hang out with people who like to have fun. We like to have fun. We like to get high. We like to drink. We like to party. We love running off in the mouth. In the multitude of words, they're lacking not sin. But we go after it like iniquity. We drink it like water. We have a field day, only we're not dealing with reality. I feel like I have to go this route. Are y'all keeping up with me? And and please listen to me. The world is built on this pack of lies of immature human beings. And if you give a child who is seven or eight or 10 years old with the gift of gab and a massive imagination money, he'll create Hollywood for you. I'm taking you there because Hollywood is exactly that. A system of make believe at the optic and the dramatic level, because they have the power to do it, to retain people's attention. It's called entertainment. Retain by entering into you and producing images and ideas that don't actually correspond with reality because they want you to live in the figment. This is why so many people can't wait to go home and get inside that boob tube or whatever they use because they can't handle reality because reality is too boring for them. Am I making some sense? 
Right. Right. It's a, it's a catch 22. It's a catch 22. If you're a lover of knowledge and you should be, you have to then understand how to actually ferret and manage and parse the wheat from the chaff. If you're a lover of knowledge, because knowledge is everywhere to be had. It is everywhere to be parsed with discernment and it is everywhere to be organized categorically so that you know whether you're dealing with gold, silver, bronze, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble. And wood, hay, and stubble have a purpose. Does that make some sense? At, at the least, it keeps you warm. But, but they, are also, they also have the capacity for temporary structures. This is why God used them in the temple. Y'all keeping up with me? So what I'm trying to help you do is understand how to redeem the, the landscape of the world you're in. Because it's not going to benefit you if God has given us all these categories of spaces of knowledge to acquire information. He's not telling you not to do it. He's telling you to do it discerningly. He's telling you how to distinguish between the wood, hay, hay and stubble, how to distinguish between the hierarchy of gold, silver, bronze and precious stone and those useless metals that will waste away over time. But metal can be a very practical tool. We use it all the time. I think about aluminum foil. I can go way down the rabbit trail of the, you know, the, so much stuff that God has given us in creation that we use that only have a temporary purpose. So you will use things that are temporal to take you to next levels of things that are more endurable. Does that make some sense? Yes. If you're smart. In fact, let me close out on that. The reason I'm saying that is, and maybe you have forgotten, but what we often did with our kids is we trained them with these temporary things of wood, hay, and stubble up into things more durable, all the way up into things more eternal. Did y'all get what I just stated? Married off my fourth daughter yesterday. It was a phenomenal wedding. Phenomenal wedding. And, and here's the phenomenology of the wedding. I'm going to just give it to you. And this is going to affirm my point because I had the joy of being able to sit there with all my kids, which they, I don't always get a chance to do because they're all over the map with their careers and stuff. And on my side of the family, we are obviously believers, explicit believers, proclaiming the glories of God. And on her husband's side were believers and non-believers who had a chance to hear a robustly God-centered, Christ-exalting wedding presentation from beginning to end with the fullness of joy and every celebratory component with it, and yet it was dominated by an exaltation of Jesus Christ, if you can imagine that being the case. So you can imagine how happy I am having looked up and now having seven grown kids almost in their 30s now with multiple grandchildren at the wedding of their auntie who was about to enter into that next paradigm of, of children and things of that nature. Does that make some sense? And, and, and so this was 60, 70, 80 people or so. And it was just I'm sitting back thinking, I don't really know if it could get better than this. And I've done marriages. I just did one week before last. I do marriages all the time of a lot of Christians uh, and don't necessarily get to enjoy 
a Christocentric, God-exalting marriage. Did that make some sense? Now, I'm glad for them because marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Saved and unsaved need to get married when it's right. But there's nothing like the presence of the Spirit of God in the midst of a marriage ceremony where people are both free and also called to contemplate high things as well. Am I making some sense? And do you know why I say that? Because I, me and my wife had to teach the children with the wood, hay, and stubble of ABCs and phonics and how to read and how to do history and how to do science projects and how to do those, those games that you play with the kids because they're learning the building blocks of how to think. Does that make some sense? So you're dealing with that until you grow them up. And then when they are grown and you hear them for themselves proclaiming the glories of God, then you're happy because they went from the wood hand stubble all the way to the silver, gold and precious stones. This is the way it's supposed to be done. I am taking no glory to myself. I'm just lauding the thankfulness that I was in a wedding of my own children that was intentionally committed for God's glory. And it started with the wood, hay, and stubble, which when I was a child, I took for granted. I took basic reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, science and algebra and biology. I took it all for granted. I was a good student. It came way late for me. My kids got it early. And so they have an easier time dealing with the story of this world. Does that make sense? So it's important for you and I to understand that, particularly now what we're about to do. For these next few minutes and then we'll open the floor up. I ask you the question. Um, given where we are today in this world of hyper complex visual aids with profound technological impressionable fantasies. Does that make some sense? How how important it is for us to res- Um, resolve the issue of if God were to allow an outpouring of a manifestation of all of the sign gifts and things that we're about to get into, in addition to this crazy world that we're in, that is also doing its own powers and wonders and signs and complex systems of magi and witchcraft and pseudo-spirituality at, at profound levels. At so profound a level, people are really not hungering for God. Am I making some sense? Would it be to a liability or would it be to a detriment? Now, the reason I'm raising that question is because we're going to actually enumerate the gifts and then um, we're going to unpack the gifts more fully next week. But I am going to enumerate them now and I'm going to give you three categories of those gifts and we'll stop right there. I'm going to enumerate them because they're easy to do in about four verses. Then I'm going to put three categories up around them. And then next week we will come back and we'll look at those gifts individually so that we can know something about them. These are going to be the categories here. They're going to be three. You can write them down, but you will have it fully in your outline next week. So notice what it says in verse 
5? Is it going to be verse 4? Look at verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 6. That's where it starts. And there are diversities of, I'm sorry, we're, we're done with that. We see that the father is the one that's engaging in the operation. He's engaging in the ernagon. He's engaging in the power. For to one individual is given, okay, the doti, that is given. For one individual is given the gift of what? The spirit, that's the spirit of wisdom. That's one gift, okay, the spirit of wisdom. I just want those to be marked right now. We can have a great time on this um, next week, but I want you to mark the first gift that's enumerated. And I don't believe that Paul means, even by the Spirit, that this is the primary gift. We're going to break them up into three categories in a moment. Okay, then we can talk about it. But the, the, the given this, uh, by the Spirit, I'm sorry, that's right, given by the Spirit, the word of wisdom. It will be the Spirit of wisdom. We'll see this in Luke's Gospel in a moment. And to another, the word of what? by the same spirit. So he is still talking about the spirit doing the one giving the gifts, right? So this one is the gift of knowledge. So knowledge is in contradistinction at this point to what? Wisdom. Important to know. Sometimes they are synonymous, particularly in their grammatical construction, because knowledge should impart wisdom, right? But sometimes wisdom is distinctly different than knowledge, in a certain functional way. But now notice the third one. Look at verse 10. I'm, I'm sorry, you have the right place. To another, what? Faith. So this is important too, because in this context, what we will have to ask is what kind of faith is it? Because it's coming in the category of the giving of the spirit, okay? The spirit is giving a gift of faith. But he's giving the gift of faith to people who ostensibly already have faith. So we need to talk about that, okay? So you're not making an assumption that this is a faith at the regeneration level versus a faith at the expression level. We're getting ready to see that. All right, so notice what he says, to another faith by the same spirit, to another the gift of what? Right, I love that. So here comes healing in the equation. Healing in the equation. So that's four. And then it goes on to say to another, the working, that's our word, in organ of what? Right. And you can just use the term miracle works or works of miracles. Works of miracles. And this is a prominent expression in the Gospels and a prominent expression in the New Testament, but largely in the Gospels, because the idea of the works of miracles is the role of Messiah when he shows up. When Messiah shows up, he, like no other, is engaging in works of miracles, okay? So if you were to look up that term, works of miracles, you would find that that was done some hundred plus times in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it was around the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. To another, the work of miracles. To another, what? Prophecy. This is going to be fine. Very good. Prophecy. Prophecy. Then we are asserting that prophecy is a what? It's a gift. And notice what he says then to another discerning of what? Right. Spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. I'm looking forward for us to unpack this in a dynamic way of tying scripture to this and showing you what it looks like 
contextually for these gifts to show up because they do that. To another, the working of miracles, another prophecy, another of discerning of spirits, to another various kinds, this here is Gene, various uh, kinds of tongues, various kinds of tongues. Now, it's important for you to know this is not talking unknown tongues because it's not even using that expression. It's saying various genres of language. That's literally how it's to be translated. I want you to get that. And it will be logically and and, uh, explicitly demonstrated so that you don't fall prey to what Paul is actually correcting the Corinthians about. So notice what he says, various genres of language. That is a gift of the spirit. Here's the next one. Notice what it says to another interpretation of those languages. And that is a distinct gift from the languages. So interpretation is something different than the expression of the gift of lalesa or glossolalesa. If a person has been given the gift of a language, let's say you've been given the gift to be able to speak Slovakian, right? And we are a room full of English speaking people. For that gift to do something by way of edification to us, we need another person who has the capacity to do what? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you, I'm going to show you the reason why before we close down. So to another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11. Okay, so we have nine gifts, do we not? In this area, there are more than that. But in, in our text, we've got nine gifts that we're dealing with. And the text, now what we're going to be told is what they are for. And I want you to capture this. And we're going to go back to verse 7. I'm going to categorize them up, open the floor up. But all these, that is his gifts, work it. Ener- this, this is the energy working that one and self same what? Spirit. He's the third person doing what? Dividing to every man severally as what? Which means the members of the body of Christ do not go to a cabinet where there's all the gifts is there. So you know what? I want gift number five. I think I'll take gift number four, too. Now, I want gift number seven. That's not how it's done. Which would mean if the believer has gifts, they were given to him without his consent or at least without his deliberation and choice. Does that make some sense? And we might even raise the question because we're here now. I need somebody to run in the Q&A. We may raise the question. Why would God do that? Why would God not entrust you to choose the gift that you that you that you that you want? Is, is that a good question? All right, because we're here. That'll be we're here. Go back to verse seven. Here's what he says in verse seven. But the manifestation, do you see that? That's our word. That's the big word there in relationship to all of these, the manifestation. Now, here's what he says, the manifestation or the appearing, the appearing, the coming to light of that which was hidden by these gifts. These gifts are going to bring to light what is hidden. But the manifestation of the spirit through these things is given to every man to profit with all. Do you guys see that? Very difficult translation. 
What it does not mean at all is that the gifts that are given by the spirit to whomever he is going to give them is for that person's personal profit. That is not what the text is teaching. It's teaching the opposite. So I just want you to capture that because a couple things happen here. Can I get a runner? This is Friday. Thank you, John. You can come on up, John, Giannis, too. Just they got it. So so in, in, the, in the context, let's just put some brackets on it and then we'll have a conversation. We'll close. <clears throat> on the one hand, those gifts are given for the purpose of what? Manifestation, bringing to light something. Bringing to light something, which you and I would know then when Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, you are the light of the world. No man takes a light and hides it under a bushel, but sets it on the counter so everybody in the room can see light. Is that what he said? That means the Holy Ghost means for that gift that he gives you sovereignly to be manifested through that gift. Does that make some sense? Right. It does not mean he's not present. It does not also mean that you don't have that gift. But it would mean that whatever that gift is he gave you would at the time you would be directed by the Lord. Remember, the Lord gives you the assignment. Did y'all get that? The Lord gives you the assignment. The Holy Spirit gives you the gifts. And God empowers that gift. The Father empowers it in order that a manifestation should come, right? In order that a manifestation should come. Right. So I'm just letting you know. And that manifestation is not for our glory. It's for the glory of God and for the edification of the body. Right. Okay. so there we go. That's the first side of it. So what I asked was, why wouldn't God give you and me the right to choose the gifts? And then would those gifts today be helpful or harmful? given the society we live in. I'm not going to answer in yay or nay to any of your questions, maybe until after we just have a few conversations. I know this was a deep study. I know it. All I need is one or two people to engage me. Raise your hand. All right, Brother Mac, I got a sister over here. Anybody back there want to take a shot at it? Let's see if we can nurture. I gave, I gave like three questions. Did you have a question? Okay, you can hold the mic. Okay. All right. I, I so, in, um, hold on for a second. I'm going to let the, uh, the senior go. Sh- Sherry, I'm going to let the senior go. Yeah. Okay, go ahead on, big, big man. Are you, are you on? I'm, I'm speaking to the question about our world and the way it's going, mm-hmm. the way it's um, diverting away from God's uh, laws and regulations for us I don't think that our world is ready for any type of uh, teachings that we had tonight in the book of uh, Corinthians as far as the church um, it just seems like to me that there is no hearing no hearkening no uh, abiding listening to the spirit, wanting to be saved. It just seems like to me that our society has turned their backs 
on anything that God has to say. I'm speaking in a light way because no, yeah. I don't know everybody. Sure. But it's called general. This era that we're living in is so dark, and we have lost so much time. Um, it just don't look good to me. And I heard a song today that says, Come, Jesus, come. You have to come and right the wrongs. The roots are so deep, and they're getting deeper. I just don't think they're ready for that, our question tonight. Yeah, I appreciate that. I want to hear that. I want to hear it, and then I want to kind of work it through, but I'm not going to do it now. I want to hear from somebody else. That's really important. That question is really important. That question is, the question I'm raising is really important. Um, does somebody else have the mic? Uh, oh, Sherry, go on. And I, and sh- yeah, I see you guys. Um, real quickly. You got to put the mic closer. Number, I, know, I know you're intimidated, but just put the mic In closer. verse number, well, actually, I'm just trying to see the, oh. what I'm looking at. In verse number 11, mm-hmm. where it ends off dividing to every man severally yes. as he will. Mm-hmm. Who's he? The Holy Spirit. Oh, it is the yeah, Holy so Spirit. Yeah, so you're going you're gonna to be okay. looking, yeah, you're going to be looking, the, the subject is the work of the third person in the, as the second person gives mission and as the first person empowers. So this is about the third person. The third person is the one working with us in the immediate approximation of gift giving. That's surprising because I always thought they were working off the will of the Father. Yeah, it is. We just taught that. Right. So this is, that doesn't conflate or confound anything that I just stated. So harmonize those two. Okay. And can I just weigh in on yeah. this discussion? I have grandchildren. They're not yet jaded mm-hmm. and haven't yet been fully formed. Mm-hmm. And so there's still opportunity for them to have faith, right? And in that way, I feel like the gifts would possibly still be useful. Good. That's what I wanted to hear. I want to build a broad consensus of perspective before we anchor down into some thoughts. Very good. I want to, I want to hear more. I appreciate that. I got grandkids too. I, I got grandkids too. Somebody else? Uh, Sharon? Uh, I would say the, the the Lord told us that, you know, broad is the way. Um, and there are many who go down that way, but there's still a narrow path. And while there are a few who find it, as long as the Lord has us here and has given us breath, we are to be that salt and that light in this world because we never know who that one person may be. Just like the Spirit took Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch, that was one person. And we don't know what the Lord, again, it's all according to the will of the Lord and who he is sending us Mm -hmm. after. Mm -hmm. In our mind, we may think that we can't conquer this large mass of people that are off, but the Lord may just want us to go after that one person. And one example I can give, you know, um, today was my last day on my job. I got a new job starting on Monday. I'm excited because now I'll be able to come to church more. Yay. And... (laughs) And I was thinking about the But fact will you be able to walk into the church? That's the question. <laughs> I got my crutches. I'm good. <laughs> um, 
The one thing, though, I, I think about with this job, even though I was there for only five months, do you know that in that five months, the Lord brought into my, uh, the people I supervise, a woman in her 60s who has been struggling, who the Lord was able to use me to actually minister to, and it, 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 we were able to form... Um, a bond and talk about the word of the Lord, and I was able to share, you know, resources with her. I was one person, and if I was at that job for five months, and I'm moving on to something else, but maybe the Lord had me in that job for five months because He needed someone to talk to that one woman, and I don't know what He'll do in her life going forward, but if there's this one person that He has reached through me. There's always hope. We always have to hold on to hope. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's the gift of the Lord. But um, I, I, I can't lose hope. When I see everything that's going around, and that's why I believe, I think I told you, it said months ago, I was really angry and upset about everything going on in the world, and the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night with Psalm 37. Mm-hmm. And that starts off with fret not. Right. And right. he reminds us, like, don't, don't trip off of what all these evildoers are doing. All that stuff's going to turn back on them. Mm-hmm. I'm watching every one of it, and I'm the one who is sovereign and in control of all of this. And I created the wicked for the day of evil. So then I have to sit back and say, Lord, you know what? You're in control of all of this. This is your judgment and all according to your will. And one other thing, I had some uh, pilots on my van one day when I was driving, and as we're driving back from San Francisco to San Jose, one of them said, so um, what plague are you dealing with right now here in California? Is it the locusts? Is it the... I said, you know what? I said, you know, I ca- I, after the trip, he pulled me aside and we were talking. I said, you know, I caught that reference. I said, but I got to know the Lord has a Goshen in California. He's got his people preserved and he's going to use us according to as he wills. And so... We have to know that the Lord is in control of all of this. Absolutely. So I just wanted to very share good. that perspective. No, it's, it's, it's a very good, edifying perspective. Thank you. Thank you for that. I happen to agree with it wholeheartedly. I agree with everything that's being said because I got this broad campus canvas that I'm looking at, and I need those observations. I want those observations. Anybody else? Um, uh, do you have the mic, Jackie? So she's, while she's waking, waiting, go ahead on, Chana. So I would say um, that the Lord or the Holy Spirit doesn't give us the gifts that we believe we should have. is because the Lord is our creator, and we are the created. And I don't think we have the um, intelligence or the understanding of how intricate he's made us to even know which is the gifts that is best for us to work under as his for his purpose, in my opinion. You want to you flesh that out? Because I'm going to have to flesh it out. Do you want to flesh that out? Because what you stated was he, he wouldn't give it to us because we wouldn't have the intelligence or what? Well, we are his created. And so I think a lot of times, kind of like what Sharon's saying, is that you, you come across people that are like, oh, yeah, I want to thank the universe, or I want to put it out there to the universe. And I say, well, why would you put something out to the universe? Why not put it out to the Lord who created the universe, you know, for X, Y, Z? And I think that we, as his created, are the same. Like, who are we to think what gifts we should have? The Lord is our creator, and 
I mean, look at Moses. I mean, he was a very humble man, and God's like, no, this is what you're going to do. And he would not put himself under leadership or as a leader. God did that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I do think that we can think through um, choices that God does allow us to have and in th- certain things he would grant us to do. Everything is not an either or. In, in the area in these, these gifts here, it's obvious. There's no argument here. The text tells us he devised them severally as he wills, right? I was simply asking why would he, he, he do that, right? And I think your underlying answer is good because we wouldn't know what's best for us like our creator would know what's best for us. That, that part I, I get. Exactly. I, don't, I don't know, however, would I, um, would I settle with um, two phrases that you put out there was ignorance uh, and something else. I don't remember the other one because we're not to remain ignorant even prior to gift giving and gift manifestation, the goal for us as believers is to walk into maturity, develop and be available for God to use us any kind of way he wants to. And you will find in scripture times when God will give his people choices to do something for his glory because he has already equipped them with that capacity. But I was asking in this regard, and I think the underlying answer you gave, even though I want to hear more, really does help. He knows what's best for us. And then also it's, it's for an end that brings him glory. Amen. Right. So there we go. Somebody else, anybody else want to add to the conversation? Jackie? Okay, my question, well, it's not a question. I understand the co- um, collaboration between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that um, through Jesus Christ, we are in the beloved. So my question, you mentioned earlier about the Unitarian. So let me, let me reframe the way you said it, because it would be, by God the Father, are we in the beloved, which okay. is Jesus. So the father placed us in the son. That's that's really technically how it was done. So Jesus said in John 17, father, you know, all that you have given me. So the son knows that those of us who are his, we're only his because the father gave us to him. And I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the administration organized because what this will do is keep the the priority of the triune persons intact. The father is the one who who conceives the plan. He executes it through the son in terms of its fulfillment and its application comes through that third person. So we are given to the son. We are placed in the beloved because the father wants us as adopted sons and daughters as well. I think you get that. But going on. Okay, and so when you mentioned the um, Unitarian, how they believe. Yeah, Unitarianism. Yeah. Um, does that leave, a, is that kind of like an idol worship because it's not the true Christ? 100,000%. 100,000%. Anytime we vary from the truth and then we cleave to that varied position that we hold, mm-hmm. we are engaging in idolatry. If we vary from the truth, it's okay because you can be corrected. If we vary from the truth and then cleave to the era of falsehood as if it's the truth, then obviously we are now engaging in idolatry, right? Because idolatry is a lie. 
That's what idolatry is. It's a lie. It's a failure to correspond to the reality. So when, when people make little icons and, and, and intricate images, those are lies. They don't reflect God. They don't represent God. They don't do anything adequately to correspond with who God really is. Therefore, it's a what? It's a lie. That's what an idol is, is a lie. So whenever we fail to correspond with reality, we are engaging in lying. If we worship that thing that we now have failed to correspond to truth in, that is idolatry. It's making sense, right? Does that make sense? It's important for, I want you to be able to get it really simply because like what people don't really understand is the idea of lying. When the Lord says, you shall not lie, you shall not bear false witness, what he is saying is, do not practice engaging in saying something that does not correspond with reality because God is a God of truth. Jeremiah chapter 20, I am the God of truth. This is why we know Jesus is the truth because he is the exact representation of the invisible God. He does not vary. All of his qualities correspond with God the Father so that he could say, if you have seen me, you have what? There are no variables between the Son and the Father at the ontological level. They are independent, but to see the invisible Father, you have to see the visible Son, right? Because he is the very truth. It would be like a real dollar bill that is printed in a mint from our Federal Reserve and a fake dollar bill that is printed in somebody's garage. They may look close, but one is false, one is true. That false one is an idol if you bow down and worship it. See what I'm getting? So your answer is right. If a Unitarian says there's only one God, he's a unipersonal God. If you have an identity of God as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, then he's really all one person shape-shifting whenever it's practical for him to do. That is, that is oneness Pentecostalism where the Son is the Father and the Holy Ghost is the Father and the Holy Ghost is the Son and the Son is the Holy Ghost. They're all one God and they kind of ship shape whenever they want to. But you guys know it would be impossible to justify the Father talking from heaven to the Son on earth, which is a proximal distance between the first subject and the object. If I'm having a conversation with you, Jackie, as we are, from this space of about 40 feet. I'm the subject talking to the object. You are the object. You are not the subject. You are not me. And so when people hear, this is my beloved son, they are hearing the father speak to the son about the son. And so we can never conflate the two. The son is not in heaven talking down to himself. I've always said it. He's not a ventriloquist. You're not projecting his voice to heaven, taking on another term, father speaking to himself. Even though they share the same divine nature, they are two individual persons. Am I making some sense, ladies and gentlemen? Otherwise, once you fail to realize this as a grammar rule, your Bible falls apart in terms of coherence. You cannot reasonably interpret the Bible once you remove subject object relationships. And so that goes to your question, <clears throat> excuse me, you asked us earlier about um, miracles and um, the manifestations and all of that. Yes, ma'am. So I would think that would be 
it's, it's so dangerous because we have so, so many delusions. Um, but also, I think Christ, you know, will reveal himself in small ways, personal ways to us. Um, that way, maybe not in a big, like, we see something on AI or, because now they're out idolizing AI also. And all that's involved, and we've gotten it confused because the church has performed entertainment, I guess you say, as you were saying earlier. Very good. Thank you for that. I'll make an observation briefly at the end. Anybody else? My, uh, Michael. Um, this kind of goes along with that, the Unitarian perspective. And I had a question, and the question sort of, answers some of that, but, you know, when you're going over the, the different places in the Bible where there's grammar of the Father speaking either to the Son or of the Son, yes, and just like in that, in that, that scene of the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and then he sent the Spirit to fall on him. So that's three individual Actions, persons, right? There, you can't. So you can't send yourself to yourself from somewhere else that you're not. Right. So it's logically impossible to think it's one person with three names. And it would be a catastrophic uh, disruption of the coherence of propositional terms. You right. So, so, so you and I are used to language that is orderly. We're used to Michael is talking to Jesse right now. Michael is not Jesse talking to Jesse. Michael is Michael. That's the subject. The subject is always the one acting. I am the object. The object is always the one acted upon. Did that make some sense, you guys? The verb form is that he's speaking. I am not speaking. Michael is speaking. That kind of coherence runs all the way through the Bible without disruption. You can't violate those norms and the Bible makes sense. Okay, so it's important when we're reading, see, these go, this goes back to the wood, hay, and stubble uh, disciplines of just basic grammar. This is why I tell people, if, you, if you're not learning how to read, you're going to have a difficulty interpreting scripture too. Because mm-hmm. God gave it to us in grammatically structured propositional form. And we don't get to skip through the rules and think we're going to have what we would call clarity of the proposition. Because you already see the enemy. He knows how to take words out and and misuse words and reframe words. That's what he does because he knows the meaning shifts. If you remove words or replace words or or add words or turn words around. Right. Very important. Go to Michael. So so here's the question. So, um, for example, when Jesus started his ministry, the spirit came down from heaven and walked with him and stayed with him. But then I, I was thinking about Matthew twenty-seven fifty, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out aloud again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Was at that point, did the Holy Spirit leave him 
and then return to the Father. Right, so see what you're doing there is being challenged as how to make a distinction contextually between the work of the third person as an independent agent upon the second person in his humanity who would have not only had a human body, he would have had a human soul and spirit. Yeah. And, and so you have to really think in terms of the, what is called the hypostases or the hypostases of Christ, <clears throat> the, the understanding, that's the term, the, the grounding of reality. Hypostases is the grounding of reality. His incarnation actually defines for us our humanity. You and I are body, soul, and spirit too. So this is why Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 that the spirit of God bears record with our spirit. Those are two distinct spirits. We have our own, God has his. In fact, that's at the level in which we comprehend intelligently theological things. Without a living spirit in fellowship with the spirit of the living God, we can't comprehend any of those things of God. The natural man does not comprehend the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned. That's one of the gifts we'll be talking about. So when Jesus is saying, Father, into my hands do I commend my spirit, he's speaking as a human being, as a representative of us and the perfections of humanity. See what I'm getting at? The third person is, he's not even uh, an equation in that factor. He's not on the cross. No, the third person is not on the cross as that substitute bearing our sin. But the third person is present in the work of the cross, as is the father present in that work. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. He, that is Jesus, through the spirit, that is the third person, offered himself up to God. That's the first person. Did y'all get that? Mm-hmm. There is a triune operation at Calvary that was critical for our rescue. But we do have to keep those categories distinct. Even when they buttress up against each other in a very, very narrow, proximal way, mm-hmm. we still have to keep them distinct. That is called theology, okay? Okay. That, again, is to be underscored by Romans chapter 8 around verse 13 to 14. The spirit of God bears record with our spirit that we're sons and daughters of God. I pray God sanctify you wholly, body, soul, and spirit, blameless unto the day of Jesus Christ. So we have to know how to keep those categories in order. And to do that, you got to be able to rightly divide the scriptures. Am I helping you guys with that? That's it's important to do. So your mind has to be strong in being able to wrestle with spiritual things, which is a gift. We'll be talking about that. The mind being able to engage in the scriptures, engage in the scriptures is critical to the scriptures and their proliferation to us in the volume of the book being there to help us facilitate a cogent interpretation to share. It's important for us to be able to do that. So who else before we shut it down? Anybody else? It's coming. Do you have a mic? I didn't see you. Go ahead on Marlis. Okay. Um, I'm really trying to make sense of this um, Trinity thing because I grew up believing in the Trinity. I still do. I just didn't really understand it. I mean, you know, I started going to church when I was five years old, and 
I believed what my mom told me and, and, and what the pastor, a little bit the pastor said. But what you, some of, I am finding myself not understanding a lot of what I believe. I mean, they, someone said if you try to figure out the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. If you deny the Trinity, you'll lose yourself. Right, and, and, and I call that explaining away something that God means for us to be able to enjoy if we're careful to know. So there's a difference between explaining something and explaining away something. Okay. Please, hold on, because I want, I want them, because you represent, you're representing a lot of people. The reason why often pastors are not wanting to engage in a discussion of theology proper is because it may challenge their own set of assumptions around it and challenge their capacity to actually organize thoughts in a clear and coherent way to share them with the people of God. But we've been doing this for 25 years so and refining it. So I can actually lay it out scripturally how to understand the unity of their tripersonality in the Father. The grounding of their reality is in the one God who is called the Father. That's why we had the text quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 from 4. There is but one God, even the Father. He is called Cardinal One. Together with the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are God. They are a tri-personal being. The only thing we're doing now is being able to hold the ontological infinitude and incomprehensibility of this one God because you can't confine them spatially. That's what I told you. Didn't I tell you that? Don't try to conceive of God in a limited spatial way because you can conceive of human beings in a limited spatial way. All I have is this space that constitutes who I am. My spirit in me is one little spirit, just as with you. You and I only share uh, natures at the generic level, not at the personal level. What do I mean by that? We all come from one species, Adam, right? Adam and Eve is the father and mother of us all. But when Adam died, he had sons, they lived. They had sons and daughters. And when the parents died, the sons and daughters still live. That means their spirit is individuated in their own person. If you have a shared ontology where you share the same spirit, if that spirit could die, then all the persons would die as well because they share the spirit at the level of oneness. That makes sense, right? So because God is the living God, he can never what? He can never die. So Christ died in his human nature. He did not die in his divine nature. Oh, that's a, that's a very Right. So now point. all of this, again, is wow. laid out. So here's what you do need to know about Trinitarian theology. This is some of the earliest battles that the church mm-hmm. fought in century one. The Bible would have never been preserved if the apostles didn't fight these battles. They fought these battles into the second century A.D. to preserve a proper conception of the true and the living God because the Old Testament gave a strong monotheistic representation, one God. But Jesus made it very clear that he and the father were one 
If that was not true, he's committing blasphemy. If it is true, yet the Old Testament says there's one God, we have to harmonize that. Otherwise, we deal with a contradiction. Does that make some sense, ladies and gentlemen? And that's what you got with Athanasius and you, what you have with Marcion. They're fighting over a Unitarian view of God or a Trinitarian view. And harmonizing the scripture allows you to come to the reality. You've got one divine being who is God by nature, existing as three divine persons who share that nature. And that nature is limitless. It's infinitudino. You cannot confine it to anything. This is why he says, I feel heaven and earth. I encompass the universe. I sit on the circuits of the universe. What does that mean? He is before time. He is after time. So when we say that the Holy Spirit was at the crucifixion of Christ, of course, the Holy Spirit is at everybody's crucifixion. In his ontological, what we would call om- omnipresence. You guys would understand that, right? But he's not there in some personal, uh, relational sense. He's there simply because he upholds all things. Everything lives and moves and has its being in God. We can, we can, we can understand that, you guys. Personality is what allows us to put categories to the infinitude of God. That's what allows us to do it. Just imagine if God didn't have a personhood. We would be saying the universe did this and the universe did that. And the uni- so that's really what they're saying when they're saying, I thank God that the universe gave me this. And you. What they're doing is denying the personhood of God. That makes sense. Because see, once God has a person, then you and I have to deal with the propositions coming out of that person's mouth. Okay, let's finish okay, up. Okay, I, I, I just want to, I also want to say that I um, feel somewhat lost um, in my understanding of the um, understanding the nature of God because so many things are are impressing on my mind. Like I, I I'm I'm not sure I really have seen Christ in the Old Testament. Then recently, I think I might have. Last night, I, I invited a lady to, um, I, t- I, I, I wanted to tell this lady about the, the YouTube channel of our church, and she started talking to, to me about the, the one name of God and that Jesus was not, uh, I, you know, I wasn't using, I shouldn't be using Jesus and then I hear tonight, you know, you talking about Jesus. So much is going on in terms of understanding all this stuff. And I, I guess I really want to know, uh, how do I, I mean, I know I'm supposed to pray, ask God for understanding. And I've been thinking about, you know, the Bible says there is one mediator, was one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So that kind of got me to thinking, okay, well, when the Bible says, and the word of God came to Moses, the word of God came to all these different prophets, I'm thinking, well, maybe that was Jesus talking to these people. So that's helping me to 
see more of Christ in the Old Testament. But then you talked to, you you helped us to see the Lord um, you know, the God when we talk about God, it's the Father. When we talk about the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the Lord, it's Jesus. But then you talked about Lord God earlier today. And so I guess I'm just trying to say how how do we how, how do we as believers sort this out? Um, do we just keep struggling with it? Not struggling in a in a in a negative way, but just ponder, 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 ponder. Because I imagine you've been working on this for twenty some odd years, and you're you know distilling it down to us, but. It's because you said if we don't understand Trinitarian theology, you said the only way you're going to Trinitarian theology is the only way you're going to properly understand your Bible. That's right. And just last night, that lady said, "No, it's not a Trinity; it's a unity." And I thought, "Oh my gosh!" And I and I I I didn't have a whole. I did not have the. I knew. I said, I, that's when I said, I wish Pastor was here to, to, to say this. But all of this stuff is very important. And I would like for you to help us to, can you give us, like, so what's remember, the next re- thing that remember, we need to do to, to remember continue? Remember what I said in, in, when I was uh, talking to you guys earlier? We have many lessons on this. We've been doing this for years. I, I repeat what is called fundamental theology every four or five years. We always go through what are called systematic theological studies. And we have them in our archives. We we have them in our archives. So like technically, if you're under good teaching, you are obligated to inculcate those teachings. That's your job. Okay. I'm talking to everybody. Like if you have a good good teaching ministry, your, your job is to capture the teaching so that you can understand it. And the way you know that you understand it is that you can engage others around it and you can, you can feed back to them what you understand and they can affirm you. But that is the job of the Christian. The Christian is to hear, then go back, affirm it for themselves in their own studies. And we have a plethora of information to be able to do that. And then you can know for yourself why we hold the positions that we do and to be able to defend it scripturally. Um, so what will often happen, and you know, I've told us this, Christians are slipping all the time. You're wasting time. Christian, you're wasting time. Y'all hear me? You're wait. This is really the truth. Like, like if you think about, if I were to think, I'm going to shut it down here. If, if I were, I'm going to let you finish, but if I were to think about where we are today in terms of society, on the one hand, we live in very complex times. On the other hand, we have no greater resources than we ever have in our life for Bible study. We ha- there, there's no greater time than now with all of the resources that are before us. If a person said, you know what, I'm going to take the next three months and just study theology proper. And theology proper is the study of God and their persons, the study of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. No one can deny the fact that you are already called upon to understand a plurality of persons in the Godhead in Genesis 1, 26. 
You get 26 verses into your Bible and it says, let us make man in our image. Okay, so if we're making man in our image and if that image is the image of God, then God in that first person plural us or second person plural us is a plurality. Right. Make them in our image. Um, And so now we're forced to figure out who this God is that's speaking to each other. Let us make them in our image. We're obligated right right there. And so, you know, and so you get bumped into by some person who has a bizarre teaching and it shakes you up because you're not ready to engage them in a peaceable and a calm, controlling way by listening to them first, not emoting. Because a lot of times when you and I are hearing other people say stuff, we're already rattled in our mind and emotionally moved. We don't like to hear something that we don't understand or definitely don't agree with. Because as soon as we hear it, we feel like we got to be ready to answer it. And then a lot of times we are not ready to answer it. Well, what the Bible says is be ready to answer it. Like Christians don't get to not be ready to answer these things. And so the issue would simply be, do I have the ability to manage that challenge that just came by not running in seven different directions at once, but rather simply saying, uh, excuse me, can you tell me where the Bible says don't call Jesus Jesus? Can you tell me that? Because as far as I know, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. That's going to be clearly laid out explicitly in Acts 4, 12. So you see what I just did right there? I said, here's a Bible verse and you just told me I'm not to look at Jesus. How do you reconcile your Unitarian view with this statement right here? And then I'm going to be able to defend his humanity and his deity as the grounds of him being my mediator. Because he can't be my mediator as God. He can only be my mediator as man. Because it's men that need to be redeemed. But as God, he has the capacity now to redeem me because as man, he can represent me. But if he were merely a man, he couldn't redeem me. So what good is a representative if he can't redeem you? He has to be both God and man to represent and to redeem. And He is the redeemer of any and everyone who comes to him. So that means he has to be a special kind of man to be a redeemer of all mankind. That that makes sense, right? I mean, I could have just kept that lady right there at that fundamental point rather than broadening it out, obviously. But you could, too. Right. And see, I don't want to go down that. I, I don't want to go down that one because you already know people get weird with the name Jesus. And that's where the church has, this is where the, I, I get it. Marlis, Marlis, this is where, so you've only experienced in that brief little moment what Christians have experienced for the last 2,000 years. Heresies are there to test whether you are wasting your time or not. You have to know. And, and again, we live in probably the best time of being able to defend the gospel of any other time on the planet. 
These arguments put people to death in the first, second, and third century. So I'm simply saying, if I don't know and, and Providence had brought some weird heretic to me and challenged my position, thank you, Lord. Now it's time for me to go, you know, get on my camel and ride and do some research because it's all available. Pastor, call the office. Is there any studies anywhere that we have around the Trinity? Because I really need to nail it down. Then you read there and all of, oh yeah, we got 25 studies on the Trinity. Because we do, because that is a doctrine you can't play with. See what I'm getting at? So maybe God is simply saying, do you want to focus on the fundamental of the nature of God and nail that down and, and, and don't get caught again next year because you went off and did something else rather than study your Bible. You know, I, I'm not chiding you, but I can tell you where my sister is, is where the vast majority of Christians are. And we, you know, pastors and strong men in the church, we shouldn't be viewed as any kind of extra special people we may have a passion for God's word and whatever a man sows, that is what he's going to reap. And so if you sow to the spirit, you definitely are going to reap the blessings of the spirit. You, you guys do know that. That should be the blessing that all Christians reap. So so we you know, you and your kids, this is how what happened to her happens to our kids when they go to college. And then the cults run up on them in college and it shreds their whole confidence, too, because they were meandering under mom and dad and thinking they were safe because they go to a solid biblical church. But they didn't go back and prove those things themselves. Y'all see what I'm saying? All right, y'all stand. Hold on. Brother James has an observation. We'll close here. The question, excuse me, the question on him performing miracles today. Oh, well, I'm rephrasing. I'm just. In the presence, and would it would it make a difference, or would it help? I just go back to the text where when he when miracles were performed, I understood it understood them to be performed in the presence of those who had faith, in presence of those who believed. And I remember there was a passage where he left the place. And didn't work miracles there because of people's unbelief. So we're living in a time now where people don't believe. I think when he performs his miracles, it's going to be in the presence of believers to maybe increase increase or strengthen their faith because the non-believers are already on an, on another page where they're already in a sense m- mocking God if you will they have their own idea you know they're serving Satan they're serving the God of their own imagination they're doing things contrary to the scripture so and they believe what they're doing is correct but they're it seems to me they're sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Antichrist. Spirit of Antichrist is the way I would, you know, I, I would frame it and not to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like they don't care because everything that's been going on, for, especially for the last four or five decades or actually uh, since the beginning of time, when the woman was tempted in the garden to 
doubt God's word, I mean, that's just fast forwarded to today where now they don't, people don't even believe. And I don't think God will waste his time with miracles or works in their presence. That's how I would sum it. I just don't believe he would. All right, this is what I'm going to say. Some of everything you guys said is true. But if you're really deferring to the scriptures, if you're really letting the scriptures speak, you would know that the miracles that Jesus did was designed before both the unbeliever and the believer. And the miracles were designed to harden the unbelievers who were not called to salvation. And it was designed to draw the unbelievers who were ordained to salvation. And it was designed to comfort the true believers who were already saved. We know that because when Jesus came to do the miracles and no one did miracles like Jesus, you would agree with that. The Bible says he came when the people sat in great darkness. It was great darkness. And he brought that great light into that darkness. But you guys also know, don't you, that people wooed and followed and cheered until they said, crucify him, crucify him. So that miracles are signs. They're signs. These are the three categories, sign gifts, salvation gifts, sanctification gifts. That's what your, the miracles are all about. The, that's what the gifts are about. Sign gifts never automatically save anybody. Whether they observe them or whether they do them. Sign gifts never are a uh, ipso facto affirmation that you're saved. Whether you observe them or whether you do them. Remember what Jesus says? Many works have I done in my father's name. And you still don't believe. So sign gifts are done for God's glory to authenticate that God is working through that person. There's no doubt about that. Jesus was Messiah. Remember what he said? Which one of you guys are going to convince me that I'm alive? I'm raising the dead. I'm opening the eyes of the blind. I'm causing the lame to, 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 to walk. That's what John the Baptist said. Are you the one? You guys got that, right? So Jesus said, I am the one because these signs are being done, right? Salvation gifts are where those signs bring men and women close enough to hear the salvation gifts of the gospel. Because the salvation gifts are the propagation of the gospel. Remember what happened in Acts 1 was the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and they spoke in different languages, did they not? Nobody believed that until Peter stood up and exercised the salvation gift of saying this is really what the prophets were saying when they preached concerning the coming of Jesus. Did that make some sense? And the true believers there were sanctified by that, weren't they? Because they were strengthened to go out and do the same thing. So when we come back, what we're going to understand is sign gifts are meant to be signs to those that believe not. That's 1 Corinthians 14 around verse 29 or 30 so, 30 or so. But sign gifts don't automatically mean a person is saved whether they see the sign or do the sign. Remember, in that day, they shall say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Didn't we cast out devils? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he will say to them, what? I never knew you. So these gifts can be seen by unbelievers. These gifts can be occupied and done as it were by appearance. We'll talk about that in a way in which that does not mean you're a true believer. Obviously, right? And so there are signs that that are speaking to God's coming. So I, I raise that question because I think that what you and I have to be ready for is this. As he said, in the latter days, lying signs and wonders will emerge and be so powerfully prolific that they will deceive even the very elect if possible. So I think what's coming and already here are levels of deception that are so marvelous and so massive that without the gift of discernment, it will be virtually impossible to distinguish that from God's authentic work that's designed to bring men and women near so that the message of the gospel means something. Does that make some sense? Right. And it's important to know that that controversy existed in Jesus day. It existed in the book of Acts. I just brought it up to hear how you guys would 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 fare with it. I think anytime God is doing anything powerful in his manifestation, where there's miracles, whether it's just providential acts that are so profound, you're going to always have these three responses. The unbeliever is going to scratch his head trying to figure out what's going on. God's elect are going to be drawn by it. And those who are already saved are going to be edified by it, if that makes any sense. Um, so let's stand for prayer so we can get out of here. I'll need a couple guys help me with my tape, with my board. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Glad to have a crew of men and women who are Berean, who are willing to come out on a Friday night. We could be doing almost anything but you've allowed us to study your word. I'm asking that you give a triple blessing upon everyone who showed up tonight um, in all of our collective labors in your word and in our individual labors. We thank you that you give us a hunger and thirst for your word. We thank you that you are gracious enough to hone our thoughts and our minds in on scripture. We are thankful, Lord, that you incline our hearts to your testimonies. We really are. And we will live with the sackcloth of, uh, of, uh, of sackcloth and ashes as we, as we prophesy to this world, Lord, in the humble recognition that things are dark. But I'm so very glad to hear testimonies. It's so true, Lord. You will grant us one person to talk to. You'll grant us one individual to minister to. That's your word. That's what you do. That's the way you've always done it. So grace us to be prepared for just that one person. Yes. Yes. What a joy. What a joy. If if the whole of heavens rejoice, Lord, over one sinner that repents, may we be committed to that task and and not actually be distracted by the fact that millions don't have any interest in you. Um, Lord, equip us for the evil days that are present and the evil days that are to come because we we need you. Uh, we, we definitely need you in the days to come. Give us traveling mercies now as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right.